The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Psych Up Live with your host, Dr. Suzanne Phillips. If you're experiencing life, and we know you are, you may have a variety of questions about relationships, family issues, personal goals, coping with the unexpected, and much more. Today, you will hear some answers from a psychological perspective, and you may just take away something that fits. Here is Dr. Suzanne Phillips. Hello and welcome. I'm Suzanne Phillips. Thanks for joining me on Psych Up Live. Today we're talking about domestic abuse and child custody. Our focus is on those cases where domestic abuse is present and child custody is an issue. What happens in these cases? Are the courts protecting kids? Here to answer these questions and much more is our guest, Toby Kleinman. She's an attorney and national expert in child custody. She's the author of the soon-to-be-released book with Daniel Pollack, Domestic Abuse, Child Custody and Visitation, Winning in Court. Toby Kleinman will be giving us a closer look at the difficult aspects of the family court system and some really valuable and unexpected information for lawyers, mental health professionals, and parents. She is a partner in the law firm of Adler and Kleinman, and she has spent years litigating domestic violence, child custody, and abuse cases. She has been a consultant in that area in over 45 states. She has trained judges and attorneys. In addition to her latest book, she has an earlier book, and she's also the associate editor of the Journal of Child Custody. She writes a legal affairs column for the Trauma Psychology Newsletter of the American Psychological Association and has taught at the Harvard School of Public Health. She's also adjunct professor at the Center for Psychology at NSU in Florida. She has been designated as a New Jersey super lawyer, and she has been a guest expert on network TV. Toby Kleinman, it is my pleasure to welcome you to Psych Up Live. Suzanne, thank you very much for having me on today. I'm delighted to be with you. Okay. It's such an important topic. Toby, tell me, what prompted you to write the new book? Well, it's been it's it's a complicated background, but before I was a lawyer, I was involved with the family court. So I had a personal experience which kind of prompted me to get into um the law and into uh, dealing with family courts in particular. 
and and that is really um, going back in time for all the years that I experienced personally first in family court and then worked in the family court. I just, there wasn't a book out there to really help mental health professionals and the litigants who they are working with. And I just felt compelled to finally put it together in writing. And uh, Daniel Pollock and I did just that. Okay. Now, one of the things that you make clear at the beginning, and I want our listeners to hear, is that this is not a book that is intended to be anti-male. It's intended to be anti-abuse. And there's no doubt that at times it is a man who's trying to protect himself and his children from abuse. One of the central pieces of your um, thesis and this very interesting book is what you call, Toby, you call it the great judicial fallacy. I wonder if you could explain that to our listeners. Certainly, Suzanne. First of all, what seems to happen, despite all of the training that judges undergo, is that there is an underlying assumption that even where there's been domestic abuse, that if the parents are kept apart, that the children will no longer witness violence and that they then will not suffer anymore and that that will provide for the children's best interest. And the best interest is the standard um, by which courts are supposed to make the decision for who gets custody. So that particular issue for me is a fallacy because it is well known that children who witness violence in the home uh, suffer deep and long-lasting effects of the violence even where they themselves have not been victimized personally. And so just separating parents is not enough. Well, what's interesting, and the question is how this information doesn't get through to the court system and the professionals involved, is I'm, I'm agreeing with you that we've seen the research. We see that um, children actually, and in a recent study with Sherry Hamby, actually revealed that watching abuse in 80% of children in homes where there's domestic violence have witnessed it is terrifying for them. They have no one to help them regulate because one parent's the victim, the other's the perpetrator. And really, they're really, you know, we always say children have no choice. They're like prisoners of war. And there's no way there's not an impact in terms of how they see both parents. One, why didn't you take care of yourself? How did you become a victim at times? And the other, how are you doing this to mommy uh, or daddy? So the question becomes, how does it happen, um, Toby, that judges, advocates, even the child advocates who meet with children are not more informed about the impact and how complicated it often shows in a child. You know, the question is less to me of how it shows than the surrounding circumstances. Let me see if I can explain that. Everybody, parents have a constitutionally protected right to parents. Um, children 
have a right to be safe in their home. That's a constitutional requirement. And the federal government has enacted laws which require states to require protection. So the question, so what happens so frequently is women who, and I'm going to use women because most victims are women, even though, of course, there are men who are battered. In fact, I've represented men who are battered. The, the fact of the matter is most victims are women. So for the purposes of these, I'm just going to use women. So That's when fine. women um, are, are uh, victims, especially after a period of time, they come to court and they expect the court to protect them and to know and to do what's right. But there are things that are counterintuitive. We would expect someone who is a batterer to have an image, a particular image. Most of us conjure up something evil when we think of batterers. But the fact is, batterers come in every size, shape, form, color, cultural background, socioeconomic background. And very frequently, the batterers come to court looking well-dressed, articulate, looking three-piece suits, saying, I would never do it. And the woman comes to court being, I won't say haggard, but seemingly angry, um, filled with what sometimes comes off as feeling like they want retribution, and judges often deem that in a word I hate, and that is hysterical. And it's, so it's counterintuitive. They think the guy seems like a nice guy. The woman seems like over the top. And they say, okay. And they, all the training that they've had seems to go out the window at that moment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, it's interesting because I think... One of the things you say in the book is that, you know, there's a push, of course, to settle, to not have to have the judge make the decision. And you say, and one could understand it, if you've been abused and you are afraid for your children, the attorney, your attorney may be a little bit annoyed that you just will not consider settling with the other party, the other attorney for the um, parent who's been the abuser that person doesn't understand why you don't settle. And then the judge sees you as someone who's uncooperative. I guess that doesn't weigh in your favor either. No, and that's very true. It's one of the reasons that um, I recommend doing something that very few attorneys do. And that is making a very lengthy, if necessary, complaint for divorce. The complaint is generally, other than a restraining order affidavit, the very first time these matters may come to court. Now, if it's a restraining order, I'll, I'll deal with that separately. But in that complaint, I like them to tell the story. Most attorneys tell them not to. So one of the things that happened is when the issue of children come up is they haven't told the story, they haven't filed for a restraining order, and so they are then easy, the women are then easy targets to be attacked as if it were really true, why didn't she say it earlier? So yes. women get blamed for the mistake that the attorney has made by t- not telling them how to properly prepare their case. Mm. In a restraining order circumstance, it's a very similar thing. Women are very often told, put the latest issue down. And the latest issue may seem minor, but women who have lived with abuse know 
that a simple threat, what appears to be a simple threat, may actually be a threat where their life is at stake. And only the woman knows that. Mm-hmm. So these are really critical initial junctures, which a court needs to have all of the information. And I have found where they do, and where an attorney is properly prepared to utilize it, the women feel fair, better in court. You know, this dovetails so well in some ways with the mental health person's position because we had Sherry Hamby on the show, which and her book is um, Battered Women Smarter Than You Think. And her big piece is to really advocate for women to do the opposite of just remaining silent. And people can be frozen after abuse. You know, that's one of our responses, fight, flight, or freeze. But she's saying start building your network and start a paper trail. Now, when women know they have a network and somewhere they can go, they're more likely to start to do that. But I know I myself will say this has to be documented by your physician. You may have to call the police You can't keep it quiet just because of what you're saying. When the time comes when you want someone to legally look at this, there's nothing that shows what you've been through. That's true. And very often, you know, one of the things that women know, in my experience, is their own risk. And very Mm -hmm. often women say, because of the risk, and very often they are even terrified to go to physicians or pediatricians or hospitals. And very often, those medical professionals are insensitive, so even when they go, it doesn't get documented. So what I sometimes tell them is to make the call to the local woman's shelter. Mm -hmm. Because that's a documentation which will be there going forward they can use that to say, I had to go to the doctor, but I couldn't tell the doctor X, Y, or Z. But I can tell it to the shelter. So this is something that I have personally um, guided people to do because it does make a record. And if and when they are ready to go, then the women's shelter can often help them in a safe way to get out of, to extricate themselves. Yeah, they. Um, I think that that's a very important documentation. We have what we call, you know, the returning abuse when the person sometimes comes back. And that's where if you add the shelter to a network of other people who at least start to become supportive or advocates for you, you're, you're so right. They know about the risk. And they also fear who's going to a shelter, Toby, and leaving their kids and dog with the abuser. I mean, you know... Most women, they, they're going to stay and protect their kids. Right. A lot of people don't go to the shelter, but they utilize the shelter hotline. Good. Okay. Okay. So, mm-hmm. in other words, they may call the shelter and just the, the, the calls are documented. So, that mm-hmm. call to the shelter with the information is going to be private unless you release it at some point in the future. That is great information to pass so on. That's really that can be really important. I mean, they will. If I, I you know, I state to state, I can't speak to every state. Um, it may be that if they believe somebody is at risk, it becomes a nine one one call, and they would mm-hmm. call nine one one. But the fact of the matter is, in every circumstance that I am aware of, 
those, those calls to the shelter are simply documentations when the women cannot document to a medical professional, whether it's about oh. the child, whether it's about uh, themselves. And, you know, hospitals have been trained to separate, but there are circumstances that men who batter will not leave the women alone, whether it's a fall down the stairs or whether it's something to a child. They just won't leave. And, mm-hmm. you know, they sound good and look good, and hospitals don't always pick up on it. Okay, really important. Now, one of the sometimes it seems to me people often tell me, my lawyer is telling me, you've got to settle because the worst thing that would happen is the judge will make the decision for, for matters in your life, and whatever you think... Do not go to trial. But after I read your book, I started to think, wait a minute. Would I be better off going to trial, Toby, than putting it in the hands of a judge who might think my husband looks very cool and is particularly calm? First of all, I love that question because it's it's a very difficult, very fact-sensitive answer that I'm going to give you. First of all, there is no right answer for some people um, settlement works. If a judge has made clear that you're going to lose custody if you go to trial, um, you may be better off if you can retain custody of your children and then doing things incrementally. Um, so that is something that has to be done on a case-by-case basis. If the judge, if you are... Um, Going to lose, if you are, let me back this up a bit. If a judge has not made clear a position prior to a a trial, then it may very well be better to have a judge make a ruling that you do not like or that isn't great. Because if you settle, that settlement could haunt you for the rest of the children's lives. For example, once you agree to something, you are essentially signing, I believe this is in the best interest of my child. You go through overnights, and, and if you give that, um, agree to every other weekend or half time or whatever you may agree to in a settlement, and then a month later, you believe something, someone has hurt your child, and you say, this isn't good for him, the child is complaining the father did X, Y, or Z, and he was always abusive, and blah, 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 um, a judge, you're going to be not found credible. More likely than not, you may lose time. It okay. Works backwards. All right. I'm, it's so important. I'm going to stop us there because we're going to need to take a brief break, but we are going to come right back. You've been listening to Psych Up Live Our guest today is Toby Kleinman. She's the co-author of the soon-to-be-released book, Domestic Abuse, Child Custody and Visitation, Winning in Court. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com What makes a great leader? Most have a vision, one that starts beyond the resources available and continues from that point into developing a solid plan, organization, and company. 
Leadership issues are discussed each week on VoltCast, illuminating leadership with host Jeff Smith. Jeff has years of experience as a leader and executive coach, and his guests will bring you information that can help a team of any size. Listen every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Want an insider's pass to everything that goes on in Hollywood? Join Summer Helene every week for Behind the Scenes. Summer Helene is known as the Duchess of Hollywood because she knows the insiders, legends, and celebs and brings the stories, the gossip, and the backstage scoop. It's the real Hollywood, though. So this program is for adults only. Behind the Scenes can be heard live every Friday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you found the beauty inside of you? Join Bonnie Bonadeo each week for Beauty Inside and Out. We'll explain how beauty plays a part in everybody's lives. Our guests are makeup artists, hairdressers, and doctors. But we'll also feature holistic and wellness specialists and spiritual advisors. You can find that beauty inside and express it to its fullest on the outside. Tune in to Beauty Inside and Out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back. We have a really important show. We've been talking about domestic abuse, child custody, and our um, guest is author Toby Kleinman, who comes with a tremendous amount of experience. Her new book, Domestic Abuse, Child Custody, and Visitation, Winning in Court. Now, Toby and I had just come to a place that I want to sum up and have her weigh in on. And the question I had asked is, is it better to settle? Is it better to have the judge make the decision in terms of child custody in in cases where there's been domestic abuse? And my question was, so from what Toby had said, if it seems like settlement is something you can live with, it might be to your best interest and to the child's best interest to go with it. If, on the other hand, you cannot bear the thought of what the settlement is going to sign you and your child up for, then, Toby, you're suggesting we go with the judge's decision. Is that more yes. or less... That's more or less... Let me, let me substitute two words as I reheard it. You said, if you can live with... And that's me, I translate that to really mean if you really believe it's in their best interest. Okay. Because that's the standard you're going to be held to in the future. Mm-hmm. Now, when does it happen that it moves beyond the judge, this may be a crazy question, and actually goes to a trial, a court trial? Okay, now a court trial in most, I think every jurisdiction, there may be one that's changed now to um, have juries, but in, 
I believe in virtually every jurisdiction, a judge trial is what you're getting, not a jury trial. I see. I so see. So the difference is what you're doing is presenting testimonial evidence and documentary evidence that you don't get to produce in the same fashion to a court. And I should also put here in a caveat that that comes in different points in a case for different people so that there are, and, and in different states, some states have interim decisions where you might have testimonial hearings, others do not. So it really depends when you're going to have a final, what they call a final hearing. And it's usually when there is sufficient information that has been shared through what we call discovery from the other person, whether it's financial or other kinds of uh, information, whether or not there are going to have been child custody evaluations or other kinds of evaluations of parents, depending on the issues involved. So at some point, and it comes down the road, it can be six months, it could be a year, I've seen it two and three years down the road. Okay, so when we think of that kind of time and the stress and strain involved, many people say to me, Toby, um, I want to protect my child, but I do not want to drag my child into the court system. I don't want my child to have to speak to someone. And yet they know from what the child has looked like, trouble they might be having in school, nightmares, or the fact that they're telling mom or dad, whichever is the victim, um, that they're scared. How does it yeah. unfold? What do you think oh. people should do about children? Okay, so let me back up again one more step. We know that there's a comorbidity between spouse abuse and child abuse. And that means, in plain language, that where there is spouse abuse, there's a, there's a very high risk of child abuse. So it isn't just that a mother has been abused by a parent, by a father. It is, it is also and that the child may have, uh, is a victim as a result of that. But we know that there is real risk to a child being abused if there's been spousal abuse, whether it's during the time the parents are living to or afterwards. We also know that domestic abuse is about power and control. In many circumstances, it's not out-of-control behavior, and I'm not saying all because there is out-of-control behavior. But very frequently, domestic abuse is in-control behavior designed to control someone else's behavior. And that may be to a child, it may be to the spouse. So the question, um, I'm sorry, you asked what do you do when the, when the child, uh, I lost the, the intent of the question. Well, no, well the, the question is, given what I know my child's been through, I feel hesitant to put my child through the court system, and yet... I think I'm supposed to because someone has, there's been a child advocate who might be assigned to my child, but I'm worried. Is there something parents should do or not do with respect to their child and their child's involvement with the court system, Toby? Okay. So if you can avoid the court system, if you can uh, avoid having a third party make a decision about your life and, and, with a capital A, capital N, capital D, have the child in a circumstance which you believe is okay for the child and the child can cry. 
then by all means, stay away from the court. Okay. Um, that's what I would tell people. If you can't avoid it, then the critical thing is to make the best judgments you can once you're involved in it. Okay. So now, generally, when you deal with mental health professionals, is there advice you give them on how parents prepare a child to deal with court um, or do child advocates in the court system get trained? Is there training that they go through? Is there a training mental health people should take in terms of weighing in, if needed, in the court system, Toby? So the answer is yes to all of that. Um, first, and, and I actually do a webinar for mental health people um, on how to be an expert. One of the things that many mental health people do not realize is the dissonance between the law and mental health. So people think, well, if I haven't been hired to do a forensic evaluation, I am not an expert just because I'm a psychologist. But in the law, that's inaccurate. Anyone who has more than a layperson's knowledge on a subject can be called as an expert to give an opinion. So, for example, with mental health people, um, if they have been treating a child, I find that mental health professionals who are treating children are often the child's best advocates in court because they have to walk, their job essentially as a therapist is to care for their client's best interest. So it is very consistent for them to promote their best interest by coming to court and giving opinions. It's mm-hmm. different than a, than a forensic evaluator. In fact, it may come in direct conflict with somebody. But that doesn't mean that it isn't permissible, and it doesn't mean that it's not okay. There are child advocates. Um, they come in a variety of fashions. Sometimes they are attorneys. Sometimes they are what is referred to in some states as minors' counsel. Sometimes they are in other states called best interest attorneys. Sometimes they are guardians ad litem. And depending on what the state statute says, their roles are going to be different. In some states, their role is to promote what the child is of, of sufficient age says he or she wants. But unfortunately, in many states, it's for them to figure out what they think is in the parent's best in, in the child's best interest, and then promote that to the court. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, that often prevails contrary to what's really in the child's welfare. So I can see, even from what you just described, that if there is a therapist working with the child, although they're not weighing in as the forensic expert, weighing in in terms of knowing the child and the permission for that person to do that could be very important. Critical, critical. Yeah, okay, I see, okay. So one of the things that I, that you describe in the book at one point is this... Um, I think, I guess this is the all-perfect answer, and it's something like this, and I wondered if you could speak a little bit about it. It's, I think I read that you were saying, why don't people consider this? There's been an abusive uh, marriage or relationship. The child has, children have witnessed this. 
In fact, I'll, I'll just add, if we think about one of the criteria for post-traumatic stress, one of them is witnessing a near-death experience to someone you love. Well, the children are doing that. So the children have witnessed this. I think you suggest, for a time, let the child heal by not having visitations with the abusive parent and instead staying primarily with the parent who had been the victim who was granted custody. But that at some point... This child could, let's make the mother or father who was the abuser, let's make him go to therapy and uh, AA, or etc. And he shows himself to have really pulled his act together. How is it even conceivable, A, that you get back to court to make that reconnection possible? And do lawyers ever agree with this kind of suggestion? I might not even have it right. Do I have it right, what you were suggesting? Yes, you have it it right. First of all, this is my own personal uh, belief that it it just seems to me logical that if somebody has experienced um, a difficult circumstance, you want them to heal, take a little time out. I've had therapists recommend it. I've actually had some well-trained psychologists in the field of domestic abuse, recommend it. And so it has been something that when litigating, I have utilized. And what you can do is put right into the agreement that the um, there will be no contact for X period of time. The father will apologize. We know, for example, that with child sexual abuse, that um, the first thing that a, a, a parent who has molested a child has to do is to try to make amends by taking responsibility and saying they're sorry. And, of course, they should never be allowed with the child alone again. Mm. But the question of whether or not that parent can ever have contact again is really in a separate issue. And if that parent can make amends, now too frequently we see parents who will not take responsibility, who deny abuse, who will not admit to anything, and therefore... Even with healing time, it isn't sufficient because then they pick up where they're, they, they left off. Um, there is a, an interesting phenomenon going on now. Um, in fact, I'm actually writing about it, where they are um, psychologists um, have been using the term, and I believe it was put forth initially by courts, of reconnection therapy. I don't know of a school that actually teaches anything or where there's been any research on what is called reconnection therapy. What I can tell you is in the cases that I have seen across the country where therapy is forced on children who do not want to see a parent because they themselves have either been a victim or they have witnessed abuse of a parent, um, it has failed. Now, we also know that, uh, according to Daniel Saunders' study, which was funded by the Department of Justice, I I think it was 2011, upwards of 79% of women who raise the issue of child abuse during a custody litigation lose their child to the named perpetrator. So that's pretty scary stuff. Why is that? Why do you think that is... Uh, I think that that goes to the issue that I mentioned earlier, that the the batterers uh, often look very cool, calm, and collected, and the women don't. And it's 
counterintuitive. They they think the kids will be fine. Well, it's almost as if character assassination of the parent takes precedence over the possibility that he or she is actually a predator of the child. Also, the whole junk science of what was termed parent alienation syndrome uh, started by Richard Gardner, um, which has no foundation in science, is often raised in one fashion or another. So these guys tend to be masters at um, attack dog, you know, attack dog tactics and putting on to others what is true of themselves. Yeah. They, def- they deflect blame from themselves by doing this and putting it on to their spouse. So um, y- lawyers have to unspin the spider web for the court. And, it's, it, oh, you know, one of the things we didn't mention, and this is unfortunate, it is extremely labor-intensive litigation, which means it is exceedingly expensive to do it right. Mm-hmm. And this is a problem for a lot of women. So it's a problem in the sense that if I did end up with a settlement, and we're looking at so many interesting things here, and it, what happens is what you said before, I, I, w- I agreed to settle, I hoped he would have his act together, he said he was in therapy, and I feel like my children are in harm's way, what is my recourse? Well, you can always go back to court to seek a modification post-judgment. These cases are... Um, that even cases that are lit- cases that are hotly litigated frequently go back for post-judgment action for courts to make determinations, and sometimes there are subsequent trials even. Mm-hmm. So because and very it's so- frequently, it's it's because the, the the women believe the children are now being abused. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're going to have to take a break, but I'm hoping sometimes it actually works to, and serves to protect the children because I have heard women say, what's the point of going back? So, you know, on the other side of this break, let's talk a little bit about how do we deal with the hopelessness. You've been listening to Psych Up Live. We're talking about domestic violence and child custody, visitations, the very complicated court system that people face. We're here with Toby Kleinman. She's the author of the soon-to-be-released book with Daniel Pollack, Domestic Abuse, Child Custody, and Visitation, Winning in Court. Stay with us. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Why? Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. You count. Tune into Interrevolutionary Radio and join the spontaneous wave of people all over the planet who, like you, are changing our world from the inside out. Follow the movement. Meet guests who are shaking things up. Call in and gain insights and courage to empower your own voice. Large or small, your part counts. So join us. Co-hosted by Beth Green and James Maynard, Interrevolutionary Radio airs live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back. Um, You're listening to Psych Up Live, and we've been having a very important conversation with author Toby Kleinman. She's an attorney and expert in child custody. We're trying to unravel what she calls a somewhat of a spider web of how to protect children in cases where there is domestic abuse, there has been, and how do we handle child custody. So Toby, there's many players in this. So maybe we can talk about, given you've been in many of these situations, how can parents um, best protect themselves and their children when they enter the court system or when they realize they will be entering the court system? What, what advice would you pass on to them? Well, the most important thing is, in the beginning, is if there is a selection of an attorney, assuming there is no expert involved yet, then the selection of an attorney is critical. Now, sometimes, I say that with the caveat, sometimes a therapist for a child or the mom is involved beforehand. If, if so, then the choice of that expert, being knowledgeable and having expertise in the effects of abuse is critical. But the attorney, the choice of attorney is critical. And I tell women, listen to your gut, and that's one, at whether you're first selecting the attorney or whether you're trying to think about getting a, a different attorney. You are entitled to an attorney of your choice, especially you're paying for it. Get someone that feels like they get, you, they get it. And then the second thing that happens is generally a selection of experts. Whether or not a court appoints an expert or not, 
um, it is often important for you to select an expert. But if you're not going to, because of financial uh, circumstances, and the court is going to appoint them, make certain that they have the requisite experience in the issues that are relevant to your case. If you have been a victim of spouse abuse, then you need to get someone who has that training and experience. I want to emphasize training and experience. Somebody can be doing brain surgery for 50 years and killed a lot of people if they never had a course in neurology or neurosurgery. Mm-hmm. So you, the experience without the training isn't enough. They need to know they've had the training and the experience. So like would I ask my would I ask my attorney to check that out for me, Toby? First of all, it is the attorney. You just raised one of the most pivotal issues that occurs, Suzanne, and that is it is the attorney who is supposed to be putting on the case for you and putting your case together. If a woman finds herself searching, something is, in my opinion, generally wrong. Okay. The attorney should know who the expert is, and, and they should be selecting them for the case. Okay. Okay, and great. The, okay, I'm just going to say one other thing. The, issue, the expert is generally only as good as their attorney and vice versa. It goes mm. hand in hand. Okay. Now, um, if we were given your, you trained attorneys, judges, if you were to give an attorney representing this woman advice, what would that be? I'd say three things. One, in the beginning, whether it's a post-judgment matter or a complaint for divorce, put the history right in the very first document. It's critical. Two, there are pivot points. There are critical junctures. The choice of an expert by you or by the court is one of them, and it is worth fighting. You do not want to fight that issue after someone comes back with a lousy report when the, when the court has selected someone which they, who, who they will consider neutral because it will be a court appointment. So that is a, a pivotal Time. The third thing is, um, I tend to, to frown upon chambers conferences. Now, some judges want them all the time, but what I have found is they put pressure to, in a bad way, to not advocate. Uh, you, lawyers are supposed to do zealous representation of their clients, and that means that they are supposed to really be advocating. It isn't about, um, especially when the welfare of children is concerned, it isn't about do you take $2 or how do we divide up a pie. When you're talking about money, very different circumstance when you're, than when you're talking about the welfare of your children. Mm. And if you were to give a, a message to mental health experts who might have... Um, the person, uh, the victim as a client um, or might have the abuser and becomes aware of that person as a client, what would you suggest? Well, it would be different if it was the abuser than if it was the, um, the victim. Right, right, right. If it's a victim, I think they have to be ready to come to court and deal with the issue of their real belief of what the person has been through. 
One of the things that can occur with victims, because they may come off in a negative, in certain negative ways, is to have that uh, mental health professional be able to explain to the court their opinion and belief that if they are safe and their children are safe, there are no issues, that they believe this person is a competent parent. Now, they will not have done an evaluation, but there are a number of ways that I have seen them be able to address that, sometimes even better than someone who has done an evaluation, because they will have diagnosed that person. And if it's something such as, and I'm not a psychologist, even though I teach at a forensic department, (laughs) if it's something that's like an adjustment disorder or something of a situational nature, they will be able to deal with that. And sometimes it doesn't show through in a forensic setting. It can be mm-hmm. often read wrong. I've seen people, for the, the best worst example that I see is very often women who have been victims come off as paranoid and borderline instead of it being interpreted as situational, if you will, I don't even like to use the word paranoid, fear, a, a, a real sure. fear. Absolutely. Um, that yep. they are experiencing. And, and so people who are not properly trained in abuse very, very often uh, misdiagnose in a forensic setting. Mm-hmm. Okay, really, really so, true. The issue with the abuser is, is different. I've never, I don't think I've ever seen an abuser go to treatment with an admission. I've seen abusers go when they've been forced to go um, and I, but I haven't seen someone independently go because they are concerned for their treatment of somebody else. They tend to still go in and blame. That's my experience. I don't want to say the other doesn't occur. I'm well, sure it's, it's, it's my it's my primary experience too. And I don't want to say that even when forced, it means they can't work on themselves. And once owning. The behavior, but I think part of the part of the profile of someone who's a predator is a denial that anything they do is wrong, and a denial that the other person is a child, a person, or someone else beside an object to meet their needs. So it's a difficult question, and it's certainly a difficult field to work in, but it's a necessary one also. Um, Toby, your your answers are so so important. When you train judges and you talk to them the way you spoke with us today, how do they receive your suggestions? Well, you know, first of all, I love training judges because I find they are actually more eager than most people would believe. Mm -hmm. And um, I feel that the difficulty comes about with translating it into the courtroom when it actually occurs. So I especially love when I get a call from a judge after a training, um, you know, with a fact pattern and what do I see. But the fact of the matter is I find that most judges actually want to do the right thing. That's been my experience always. I don't think they're out to harm victims. I think they do it uh, unwittingly. I'm Mm -hmm. sure that both both are true and I'm sure, you know, there are judges who are taught go along to get along. There have been stories out there 
um, that I have heard that I'm, I know a judge who actually said that they were told to give, as soon as a woman complains of abuse, give it to the, the, the child, to the father. No. In my, my personal experience has that not been that, that, that that's what the belief is. I think most judges want to do the right thing. Okay, I guess that's what explains why it's so important that you've talked to us about experts and the presentation of different aspects of the situation and what you call in your book, following the themes. Uh, I mean, I, I want to thank you and, and ask you, when is your book coming out, Toby, and how can people buy it? Okay, they can buy it by going on Amazon. There's a pre-order um, it was originally scheduled for May 1st. I'm told now that it may be mid-May, mm-hmm. so hopefully no later than that. But you can pre-order, and I believe there's a discount if they do pre-order through Amazon. That's probably the easiest way. And if anyone wanted to contact you, be they an attorney, a mental health person, or even a parent, how would they reach you? My email address is Toby at AdlerKleinman.com, A-D-L-E-R-K-L-E-I-N-M-A-N.com. Toby is T-O-B-Y. So um, feel free to email me. Um, Toby, I really want to thank you for coming on the show and your book, Domestic Abuse, Child Custody, um, and Visitation, Winning in Court. I think it's a gift to every one of the players in this very difficult situation. Um, for all our listeners and myself as a mental health professional, thank you very much for your work. Thank you, Suzanne. I appreciate your giving me this opportunity. All right. I want to thank my listeners. Please remember you can hear this and any prior show as a podcast on my host site, my website, on the podcast app of your iPhone and on iTunes under Voice America Psych Up Live. By 7 tonight, um, Toby Kleinman's show will be a podcast. You can get it right on your uh, smartphone. Please drop me a comment or a question at radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Until next week, mostly, please take care. Thanks and be listening. Thank you for tuning in to Psych Up Live. Please join Dr. Suzanne Phillips for another edition of our programming next Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk more next week.